Sour Patch Kids. First they're sour. Come on! Then they're sweet. <laughs> That's cool. Today's message is brought to you by Sour Patch Kids. Um, no, it's not. Although it is, I would say, easily in the top five for uh, the favorite candy for my wife and me. So uh, if you're ever thinking of like, I don't know, like what to get your pastor for pastor appreciation. <laughs> I don't even know when that is, for the record. Uh, Hope does not celebrate that. Boy, this got off to a weird start today. Hey, my name is Danny. I'm a pastor here. I'm so glad to be joining with you all. Uh, again, we believe it's no accident that you're here. We've been praying for you, and so we're so glad to worship with you all today. Uh, no matter what kind of week that you've had, um, no matter if life has been easy this week or if you're relating to this series, When Life Gets Tough. This is the fourth week of our series called When Life Gets Tough. And I showed you that opening clip because there are some situations in life where it feels like love is tough. Has love ever been tough for you? Have you ever had a hard time loving someone? In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, right before the passage that we read from this morning, it basically proves to us, yes, love can be very hard. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. I mean, this Christian kind of love that we have, it resembles this family kind of love, brothers and sisters. And if you have brothers and sisters, or if you've seen brothers and sisters, or if you have friends that are as close as brothers and sisters, you know that brothers and sisters are not always the easiest people in the world to love. Am I right? Some of the people in this room are like, oh, you have no clue. So these are my brother, this is my brother, this is my sister, uh, and we get along very, very well. And if, if you saw things from the outside looking in, you'd probably think like, oh yeah, we love each other very, very much. And we do, but that does not mean that love is always easy. Now I'm on the, left, the right side of that picture, but I'm the middle kid. Um, and if you're a middle child, you know what neglect feels like. <laughs> you know what it feels like to be bullied. You know what hand-me-downs are like. <laughs> Um, my brother and my sister have a very special bond. I have a very special bond with the two of them, too, but one of the things that they related um, over was they had a common enemy, me. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've said this before as well, but like, I'm not like the most physically affectionate person in the world, which, honestly, pastors shouldn't be, so that's fine. But all I'm going to say is I'm not the most physically affectionate person. My brother and my sister, they have no problem with hugs. They have no problem with like putting their arm around somebody. So on road trips growing up, this was very, very uncomfortable for me. Especially since I was the middle kid, my brother and sister decided, oh, middle kid, middle seat. What? Didn't even make sense to me. But no, sure enough, I'm in the middle seat. Now my brother and my sister, like me, we'd like to take naps on the road trips. And my brother and my sister, they had no problem, you know, like leaning their heads on one another. And like, oh, that's so sweet. It's very picture worthy. I would take out folders. I kid you not, folders. I would pack folders in my bags for our road trips so I could divide myself from my brother and my sister. Just to let them know I don't want to be touched. Some of you are like, so that's why you ended up the way that you are. And they just thought it was hilarious. We'd be driving to grandma and grandpa's house, like, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. But the cool thing was, is our parents, we would, they would let us have at it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I walked out of that car with bruises and hurt feelings, which were much worse. But our parents would always tell us, all right, you got 10 more minutes till grandma and grandpa's house, and once we get out of the car, you're going to love each other. My parents, we actually had a rule in our house. And it wasn't uh, what it might seem like when I say it at first. The rule was, Say whatever you need to say to each other inside the house. Say whatever you need to say to each other privately. Say whatever you need to say to each other as brothers and sisters will. But the second that you're outside in public, the second that other people are in front of you, you encourage that person. You affirm that person. You support that person. You love that person. 
Now, that is not simply just to make our family look good. No, it is to remind ourselves that it does not matter how dirty our history can sometimes be with one another. I know they have my back. I know that deeper than any issue that we might have between us, when it comes to it, when we walk out into these spaces, we are together. And I believe that is what Hebrews chapter 13 is trying to tell us. You have a togetherness. You have a kind of love that is like a brother and a sister. You might fight in the backseat of the car, but when you go out together, you support one another. You affirm one another. You show one another that you have each other's backs. Now, there's this interesting juxtaposition because it talks about brotherly and sisterly love. And then randomly it says, but don't love money. And that might seem like a strange, hey, let me just throw this in really quick. Keep on loving each other's brothers and sisters. Don't love money. Now, maybe it's money for you. Maybe it's some, more, some other sort of idol in your life. I don't know what it might be. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's a position. Maybe it's a status. Whatever that might be. But he's saying love people over stuff is the point. Love people over the possessions. Love people over the materials. Love people over the status. Love people over yourself. Love people over the things that you can have on your own. We live in a culture and a society that says, me first. I have to do things that are the best for me. But when we look back at the scriptures, we see that we are reading into a community of people that, re that they decided for themselves, the only way we can live, the only way that we can survive, physically survive, is if we are together. And so for them, it was we is greater than me. Now, I'm not saying that that is always healthy. I'm not saying that you should be able to tell your kids every single thing that you do because that's what's best for the family. That's not the point. But maybe we could get back to that a little bit where we realize that we is greater than me. That my life, is not, my life is not determined and is not valued by the amount of things I can buy with my money. But my life would be so much more meaningful if I truly treasured we over me. Here's a really simple illustration to show you what that's like. So here's Haley Shepherds, our outreach minister. Woo! And we've got our bass player, Austin. Yay! All right. So Haley Shepherds, we always joke on our staff, there is not a single sport in the world she's not good at. It's really frustrating. She wins everything. Haley, I asked her this morning, I'm like, hey, you did grow up playing basketball, right? Yes, she did. She grew up playing basketball. I asked Austin this morning, did you grow up playing basketball? No, Austin did not. Austin, can I see that ball really quick? And Haley, you can come over to my side of the stage. Now, Haley, the all-star athlete, is going to dribble this ball across the stage as fast as she can. Now, meanwhile, I'm going to try to get the ball across the stage. Meanwhile, I was a wrestler in high school. Don't forget that, and don't be surprised. But nonetheless, I was a wrestler in high school. Now, I'm going to get the ball as, as, across the stage as fast as I can with my friend Austin. Not basketball players. Against the basketball player. Are you ready? Give us a countdown. Three, two, one. <laughs> I admit, the throw was a little high, but we are greater than Haley. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. The point is we, it's greater than me. Now, if they pass the ball back and forth, it'd be the same thing, right? You guys, give them a round of applause. Aren't they awesome? <laughs> Two people who are not basketball players were able to get the ball across the stage faster than one person. No matter how great of an athlete Haley is, it, we is, is, is greater than me. This is, this is true in our lives. Now, who's the we? Because sometimes it's, well, my brother and my sister, the people that I've grown up with. That's easy, right? But the Bible pushes us. Who is your brother and your sister? Who is your neighbor? Jesus was asked this question. In the book of Hebrews, it, it pushes us. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Strangers. Turn to anybody in this room and say, hi, stranger. Do you feel uncomfortable? That's what I think Hebrews 13 is trying to get us to do. To feel a little uncomfortable and start to be okay with that. 
It says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. It's that kind of deep sort of empathy. Now, when we think hospitality, we think like resort, we think Martha Stewart, we think nice, cozy, warm music, gentle things happening, right? But, but biblically, like, what does hospitality actually mean? It, it might be those things. It might be doing things to make your home a welcoming and loving place to people, but, but it, it's deeper than that. Here's the word for, um, for uh, hospitality. It's philozenius. Go ahead and say philo. philo. And then say xenius. To the real Greek scholars in the room, well, that X is actually, okay, well, that's hard to pronounce, okay. It's hospitality or love of strangers. It comes from two words. There's philos, which is friend, and then xenos, which is strangers. Xenos is the same thing that we get our word for xenophobia from. It's this fear, prejudice against foreigners, strangers. The Bible says those need to be your friends. Those need to, people, no, those need to be the people that you love. I mean, I think that at its core, hospitality is this embrace of change. Someone's coming into my life that I don't recognize, that I don't know, that I don't always feel comfortable with, but I will become friends with that person. I will show love to the stranger. Know this, biblically speaking, hospitality does not fear change. Change is scary for a lot of us. Change is something that we all want, right? Like, oh, I wish I could change certain things in my life, but then when the change comes, we fight it. If you've ever seen the Facebook group called Ames People, please don't, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you want to get toxicity into your life, just subscribe to that. <laughs> Holy smokes. It looks like this. Go back one screen. Life changes and me. It hits us like a wave. Like we resist it. I, I, don't, I don't want that. Like, I mean, I'd like the change, but my goodness, when I actually feel it, when I actually experience it, it's one thing to want the change, but it's a whole other thing to experience it and how uncomfortable we feel. Does anybody here feel just totally comfortable with change all the time? If, I, let's do a test. Go ahead, sit up, and sit next to someone you don't know. I'm kidding. We won't do that because it's too uncomfortable. Ah! I'm the one who doesn't like physical affection. Some of you guys are like, my love language is physical touch. Oh. All right. <laughs> I'm taking that way too far today. <laughs> I'm not getting out of that. Anyway, <laughs> life changes. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, it's a lack of control, isn't it? I was trying to find out what is it this week that, that we, we resist change with? Why is it that we don't like change? Among all of the lists, toward the top of every single one that I read, had something to do with control. We really, really struggle with giving up control. When somebody new comes into our life, we experience that. When a stranger, when a foreigner, when somebody of a different perspective, when someone that we have a hard time with comes into our life and we're supposed to be hospitable toward them, we're supposed to make friends with them, we're supposed to love them, we're supposed to honor them, we're supposed to serve them, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we can't control them. We don't know what they're going to say. We don't know what they're going to do. But you know this. The relationships that you try to control will not be your closest relationships. That person will run away from you. And maybe we start to wonder, my goodness, why can't I have any close relationships in my life? One just really humble, honest test for that is, am I trying to control people? I mean, really, ask yourself that question. I asked this in a sermon recently, and I think it's worth bringing up again. Are you more focused on controlling people or loving people? Let me say this. Toxic religion is when we control people. 
But transformational Christianity requires us to love people, no matter who they are, no matter what they think, no matter what they believe, no matter where they've come from, no matter how they talk, no matter where they're trying to push you to go, you love them. Their perspectives, their beliefs, their opinions, their backgrounds do not influence your ability to love somebody. Now, I've got a really close relationship in my life, and I love this person oh so much. This is my wife, Abby, and tomorrow is our two-year anniversary. Right? All right? Um, and uh, so I don't know, like, I don't know, like, we're not newlyweds anymore, if we are, whatever, but, but we've learned with one another, like, okay, like, yeah, we can't control each other, not that we've ever really tried, but especially after we got married, we moved into one, into, moved in with one another. It was like, okay, yeah, like, we really can't control each other. Like, there were things we didn't know about each other. Like, I like the house to be 60 degrees. She likes it to be 1,000 degrees. You know what I mean? <laughs> she likes saunas. I like blankets. You know, like, so it's just different. You know, so we, we compromise. We don't try to control one another. Now, the interesting thing is we've gotten to a place where, quite frankly, we're pretty comfortable. Like, life is pretty easy. We've got each other figured out. We get along really well. I, I mean, like, she knows what I'm thinking before I even know what I'm thinking. It's amazing, you know? We're like this one unit. It's awesome. I love it. Now, we have recently lost complete control, and this is why. About a month ago, I brought our dog, Denver, on the stage. I'm like, isn't he so sweet? Isn't he so cute? Isn't he so wonderful? He's the best dog. He's a beast. He's a wild animal living in our home. He does what he wants. He says when he wants to say. I don't even know what he's saying. He just looks at me and barks. I'm like, I can't speak your language. And I told you about a month ago, I'm not going to control my dog. I'm going to love my dog. <laughs> God help me. <laughs> oh, God help me. Now we love, you have no idea how much we love this dog. No idea. You know how much I love this dog? This dog, I have, I have committed. We have committed. You don't go on the furniture. You don't go on the couch. Well, this morning, hmm. <laughs> My wife is seeing that for the first time. I'm so sorry, Abby. I, I was up early. Uh, and the poor guy, I mean, just look at him. Like, you just can't control. Like, whether you want to or not, eventually you lose control. You don't have control over creatures, but especially over people. You just don't. I mean, you can do your best. And at a certain point, that's going to become manipulation. And at a certain point, manipulation can become abuse. So please, venture far away from control. As Christians, we have no business doing that. Our job is to love people. Now, this loving strangers, it wasn't just big for people who are reading the Bible, for people who would have been receiving the letters to the Hebrews. This was big just in ancient culture in general. These were four principles that were kind of rooted in ancient hospitality conduct. The first was there was an invitation. Now, back in those days, traveling was extremely dangerous. For one, the transportation wasn't super easy. You had to walk, so people weren't really traveling. So if people weren't really traveling, they didn't have, you know, hotel, motel, holiday inn. You know what I'm saying? Instead, like, if you went to a place, you had to just stay in someone's home. An inn, back in those days, including the inn that Mary and Joseph would have been looking for when Jesus was born, it would have just been somebody's home looking for someone, looking for someone to take them in. It was dangerous. They needed someone to help them. And so the first step to hospitality, especially for foreigners, for strangers, it was an invitation. The foreigner would stand, literally stand outside the city gate, 
and wait for someone to invite them. Outside of the community, outside of the society, blocked off, waiting, someone invite me. I just got to stop for a second. Who in your life is waiting outside the city gate? Who desperately needs to be welcomed in? Who desperately needs to be invited? Who do you need to let inside? The first thing for ancient hospitality conduct was an invitation. Then, in ancient culture, it was also screening. Like, they were safe about it. So oftentimes people would come with like a letter of recommendation, if you will, or a letter of reference to say, I'm safe, you can take me into your home. So there'd be a screening process, they wanted to be safe about it. Then there was the hosting. You'd welcome them in, you'd wash their feet, you'd feed them, you'd house them, and typically after about two days, you would send them on their way. And you're like, well, that's why it worked. Two days. My grandpa always said, family is like fish. After three days, they start to smell rotten, you got to send them out. He was great. He was great. And so there's the departure, right? And so you send them off on their way. This was ancient hospitality conduct. It was a big deal to them. You didn't let people stay outside the city gate. Now, I had regulations to it, sure, but, but this was the ancient hospitality conduct. Now, when we talk about hospitality, not just from an ancient culture standpoint, but specifically how Jesus wanted to transform his culture and also transform us someday, too, he told stories about hospitality as well. There's one in Matthew chapter 25, and it's kind of this obscure passage talking about sheep and goats. Some of you might think this is crazy, but I have a hard time telling the difference between sheep and goats. You're like, wow, okay, you're not very cultured. No, I'm not. I grew up in Waukee. It's, you know, it's not, I can't help that. I thought that would kill. I thought that would be hilarious. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. But Jesus is saying the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, Someday, he will place the sheep at his right and the goats to his left. Okay, well, what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? You know, I don't understand. Well, then it says that he would say to those on his right, go ahead and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. And it continues to say this on the next slide. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. I think that it's so interesting. Jesus is saying, when you do these things for someone else, you do it for me. How do we know that? Because they ask him, well, when did we ever do that for you, Jesus? I mean, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. When were you ever in need? How could you ever need anything at all? When were you hungry? When were you naked? When were you in prison? When, were, when could we have ever possibly served you? I mean, how do you serve God? The God who doesn't need anything at all. So they ask him, when did we ever do these things for you? And Jesus responds, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Do you see how closely Jesus attaches and associates with the least of these in this world? With other people. Do you see how deep Jesus' empathy runs? It runs so deeply with the people around him that when you are experiencing something, he experiences it too. Jesus so closely associates with the poor that when they're hungry, he is hungry. When they are naked, he is naked. He so closely associates with the least of these. What are we doing? What have we done? It says by the end of this passage, he says to the goats, you didn't do this for me, so I'll wait with you. Because you don't know my heart. You don't know that kind of empathy. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? Like, I don't know, am I following Jesus? Know this, Jesus calls you his family. Now, when Jesus calls us his family, that's when the decisions happen. Know this, 
Jesus made the decision to welcome you. I didn't make the decision to go into Jesus' family. Jesus made the decision to welcome me. But once I accept that and receive that, I say, what, this has changed my life. And I become aware of it. Then I start to make decisions that change the rest of my life and the rest of my behavior. So all of a sudden, I realize my life is not about glitz and glamour. My life is not about how loud I can be. My life is not about the things that I can buy. My life is not about me. But instead, my life could be quiet. It could be unnoticed. It could be unglamorous. But holy smokes, I could change the world. Because I would be touching the heart of God if I served the least of these. I know I'm the least of these many times in my life. I needed someone to serve me. I needed Jesus to love me. I needed Jesus to feel the things that were happening to me. So who are we? What have we done? This is what love is. I mean, this is what makes Christian love different. Love is defined all over the place in the Bible. Probably the most famous passage in the Bible about love is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've been to a wedding, you've likely heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. My wife and I, we had 1 Corinthians chapter 13 read at our wedding. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I bet every single person in this room has some really spectacular gifts. I bet you've got things that are glamorous, right? Whether you believe that about yourself or not. God's gifted you. God's made you. God takes pleasure and delight in you. There's something special about you. But there's nothing more impactful, more meaningful that you could do than love. You could know everything. The passage continues to say, you could actually give your entire body as a service. But if you didn't love, you would have gained nothing. I think about it like this. As a pastor, I get to go to a lot of weddings. Um, I oftentimes don't get to go to the reception afterward because weddings are on Saturday. It's like I got to be preaching here. And, but last night, um, a close friend for Abby and me, they were getting married. And so we were there. And like at most weddings, if you walk by, you know, like the kitchen or something like that, there's, there's like that loud, clanging, crazy noise, right? Like ding, ding, ding. And it's just, it, it causes anxiousness and anxiety. And you're like, oh, I don't like that. Like there's nothing that's fun about clanging uh, dishes and plates and pots and pans. There's nothing peaceful and fun or enjoyable about that, right? And yet, like just a few minutes later, when we're all sitting around these tables and someone stands up and they talk so highly of this couple and some people who are giving these speeches, they talk very poorly about that couple. If you're ever a best man or maid or matron of honor, please don't insult the couple. They're trying their best. I don't understand that. Just a small little word. But as they raise their glass and they give this toast, you hear it again, don't you? Like, it's that same noise. It's the clanging. It's the dinging. It's a noise that shouldn't be peaceful, that shouldn't be nice. And yet when we hear that going around a wedding reception, it's like all of life has come together. All of these people, all of our stories, every single person that has encouraged that couple to stand here on this day before their God, their community, and their families to say, I love you, I'm committing my life to you, and I walk through this life with you, with our Savior, with our God. What's the difference between that and the clanging noises in the kitchen? Now, if you work in a kitchen, there's like, this is just an illustration, okay. But what's the difference? The difference is that this one is rooted in love. 
the substance of this one is love. And so it's just so interesting how it creates something different in your heart. Suddenly, it's, it's not annoying. It's not clanging. It's not loud. It's the same volume, probably, right? I mean, maybe there's a little bit more harmony in the room. But because it's rooted in love, it's different. It's different. So here's my question for you. I mean, we're talking about all this stuff. and Is it actually worth it? Like, is Christian love, is welcoming the stranger, is embracing change in your life, is it actually worth it? That's a fair question. I don't think that I can answer it for you. That's something that we have to answer as we experience it on our own and in the community of the people of God. But I can answer this for you. To God, loving the stranger, loving the foreigner, it was worth it. See, in Deuteronomy, God is speaking to the people. This is before they're about to enter into the promised land that God has promised them for a long, long time. They're about to enter it. It says that God, he, he doesn't show any partiality, right? God doesn't favor the people who were born in this community or in that one. It says he ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So now you too must show love, and, must show love to foreigners. For you too were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Specifically, he's talking to the people of Israel. They had spent so much time, so many years, generations and generations and generations in Egypt living in slavery. It says, you were foreigners in a foreign land, but I came and I redeemed you and I saved you and I made you my family. And my goodness, if we don't see ourselves in the story of the Bible, if we don't see ourselves being redeemed by God, if we don't see ourselves being a part of the fallen humanity that God continues to choose and receive and accept every single day, we're missing the point. And we're not going to make differences in the world until we realize I've received grace. What difference are we making? I mean, I get it. You can make differences here in your life, here and now. You might be able to make differences in your children's lives, in their children's lives, in their children's lives, because maybe you'll make so much money, or maybe you'll have so much fame, or maybe you'll make such a worldly and earthly impact. And those things matter. But what about grace? What about love? What about acceptance to the foreigner, to the stranger, to someone who thinks differently than us? Someone who believes something entirely different. God doesn't tell you that it's your job to change them. God doesn't tell you that it's your job to control them. God invites us to receive them, to enjoy them, to know that the presence of God was in, is in that person. It says in the book of Genesis, God created every person in his image. We look around this world and all these different people, some that we like, some that we don't like, some that we agree with, some that we disagree with, some that have used us, some that we've used. In every single one of them, there is the image of God. Oh, what are we missing? What are we missing if we don't welcome people, if we don't receive people? Well, we're missing on one of the greatest gifts that God can give us. Hospitality is not just about you serving and you doing things and you getting tired. Hospitality is about enjoying the community. It's about enjoying what God's giving you. Let me tell you, that you could climb the highest mountains, go to the deepest seas, travel to the east and travel to the west. You could see the entire world, and so many people do, every single day, every single year, and every single bucket list has all these different things that people want to see across the world. But here's what God says. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more majestic. There's nothing more special. There's nothing more sacred than the person who's next to you right now. And the person that you see when you look in the mirror. 
We go to these art museums, and we're like, wow, how did someone create this? Look at yourself. Don't you see how loved you are? Don't you see how cared for you are? Don't you see how much God loves you and obsesses over you? He made all these intricate details about you. He arranged so many different things throughout all of history just so you would exist. Oh, you're the most beautiful creation. You're the most majestic. You're the most special. And if it's true about me, it's true about you, it's true about our neighbors, it's true about our brothers and sisters, it's true about someone who might support us, it's true about someone who might oppose us. Welcome the foreigner. Welcome the stranger. See, biblical hospitality takes it even further. It's not just this ancient conduct of hospitality, but there is biblical hospitality, and it is an open door, an open heart, and open to change. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think that these are three good starting points. The open door. I mean, you can very practically, physically open your home to people. When was the last time you had somebody over for dinner? I mean, I get it. You might think you're a miserable and lousy cook, but I bet you that the relationships and the laughter and the joy and the dinging of glasses would be worth a lousy meal, even if it was. And it's probably not that bad. And then there's an open heart. These are the, the emotional and spiritual spaces where we get to connect, where we get to love one another, where we get to care for each other. My goodness, how often are we trying to tell people how much we know rather than show people how much we care Oh, I've heard it said before, and I think that it's so true. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. When I was graduating seminary, they gave us two things. They gave us our diploma, and it says, I've never read it before, actually. Uh, the Board of Trustee of Bethel University on recommendation of the faculty has conferred upon Daniel Eric. Can I just have this moment? Uh, <laughs> Master of Divinity, most misleading degree title of all time on this 24th day of January, 2018. Um, they gave us the degree, right? This says that I know stuff, right? Like, I, I know some stuff. And then they also gave us this towel. And on the towel, it says, follow me, it's quoting Jesus. So they gave us the towel. After the ceremony, um, some friends and I, we went up to one of our favorite professors, his name is Dr. David Howard. And uh, D. Howe, we called him. Uh, you got any... Got any last words, huh? And he looked at all of us, and one by one, he came up to me and says, let me see that. We handed him the degree. We handed him the towel. And he said, that's my parting wisdom. People won't care how much you know. And it won't matter unless they know how much you care. Follow your savior who gets down on his, on his knees and washes the feet of people who didn't know anything that he was up to. I mean, really, they didn't. They had ideas, but they didn't get the big picture, and he still got on his, on his knees, and he still washed their feet. So in my office, at our old link and our old offices, I always have it like this. I always have the towel over the degree. I just got a new bookshelf in my office, and at the top, I put up my diploma, and I put the towel over it. This is my reminder. Caring matters a lot more than what you know. Don't get me wrong, what you know matters. But do people know that you care about them? The other thing about biblical hospitality is that you're open to change. That means gains and losses. Change doesn't always mean good stuff. Sometimes change means that you lose stuff. Loving people, it can be exhausting. Loving people, it is an enduring experience, but it is the most rewarding thing that we can do as children 
of God. Be open to change. We can be open to change because we have a solid rock as a God. I showed you that meme earlier where the waves come and the change hits us like a massive, you know, storm, wave, tsunami, whatever you want to call it. And in the seas of life where there are all these waves and it feels like the only consistency about this world is inconsistency, Jesus says, I am consistent. I remain constant. If we back up a little bit in Hebrews chapter 6, the author says this about Jesus. We have um, a hope that is strong and trustworthy. And it's an anchor for our souls. And as the waves go all around this anchor, it dives deep into the waters. Now, that sounds beautiful and that sounds cool. And maybe you have an anchor tattooed on your bicep and that's really neat. And you could probably beat me up because if you have an anchor tattooed on your bicep, you're stronger than me. (laughs) Trying to find my place here. But sometimes I wish God was a lot more like a helicopter. Save me, Jesus! Comes down, you know, straps me in. I climb up, you know, heroically on the ladder and there's an explosion beneath us and we're flying away and there's some cool pictures I can post on my Instagram later. Thanks, Jesus! That was awesome! But the Bible compares Jesus to an anchor. And what does an anchor insinuate? We're not going anywhere? Yeah. But it'll keep you from drifting and it'll keep you from sinking. See, an anchor, it's committed to you. It is tied to your boat. And it also dives deep down into the places where we cannot and do not want to go. The places where Jesus goes and wins our victories for us. Jesus is committed to you. And Jesus goes to places that we cannot and do not want to go. Because he loves us. He cares for us. He is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. So in Hebrews chapter 13, as this book is concluding, it reminds us this Jesus promises us, and it's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 31, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. That anchor is connected to you doesn't mean that the waves are gone, but it means that you have an anchor. You have a strong and trustworthy hope. Now, that's the way that we translate this into English, but if you take a look at what it looks like in the, in the, um, in the Greek, it's very interesting. You got u, me, se, ano, ud, u, ud, u, me, se, en, kata, lipo. Oh my goodness, it's still fresh in me. That's good. Now, the words that are in yellow are all negatives. Now, in English, a double negative means, no, no, don't do that. You've just contradicted your sentence. And I don't know if that's specifically what that was used for in the Greek as well, but I do know this about the author. Here's what I do believe about the the intent of the author in Hebrews chapter 13. Five different times in one verse, this author is saying, never, 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 never will he leave you. Do you want to hear it again? Never again, never again, never again, never again, never will he leave you. There is this assurance. There is this promise. Sure, things change, but you do have this constant. It doesn't mean that the changes are easy, but it does mean that the changes that we endure are possible. We can actually go through them. We can actually welcome them. We don't have to close our doors when the changes come our way. We can open our doors. We can make the family bigger. Jesus has promised you, 
I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Never, ever, 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 ever. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. I just love that. It's beautiful and it's compassionate and it's, and it's caring. And then again, at the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in case you forgot about the never, ever, 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 forever, he's with you. See, Jesus, he knew what it was like to be outside the city gate too. Hebrews chapter 13 really concludes like this. On the next slide, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates. It's interesting. He started his life as a foreigner. We know that, right? Jesus was born in a manger scene, right? He's born in a manger, an eating trough for animals because there was no room for him. He was a traveler. He was a foreigner. He knows what it's like. And at the end of his life, he is outside the city gate. He's walked into that place. Connected to us, committed to us, but gone into that place that we do not and will not go on our own. Outside the city gate, and why did he do it? He did it to make us his holy people. Holy is a fancy word just simply to say, set apart. God has set you apart. God set you apart from all of creation. It doesn't mean God sets you apart from other people. Like, God sees people, humanity, create. That is his favorite part of creation. But us, people, God set us apart. So let us go out to him, outside the camp. Don't be afraid of the change. Bear the disgrace that he bore, for this world is not our permanent home. That doesn't mean disgrace this world. This world is also God's creation. We need to take care of it. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. And what is that home yet to come? In Revelation chapter 21, toward the very end of the Bible, it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Someday, when all of us get together, and we have our glasses, and God's going to say something really cool, and all the preachers will be quiet, and every knee will bow, And I don't know, I mean, it's going to be better than this, but I just imagine, you know. And because of the love of our creator, it'll be the most beautiful sound any of us have heard. See, God works in this changing world. He works in this changing world to continue to change us. The never-changing God is ever-changing us. And what is God changing us into? A family that one day, for all of eternity, will sit around his table feast. And we will know that he never left us. He never forsake us. Never, ever, 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 ever. The waves came. They hit. They hit all of us. But he loved us and he cared for us. My goodness, if we receive that grace, how can we not share it with the people around us? No matter who they are, no matter what they think, no matter what they believe, no matter where they've came from, they are welcome with us. Be hospitable. Love the stranger. Be their friends. Because God's calling the strangers of this world his family. He's welcomed us to the table feast. So is everyone else. Amen.